It was the largest gathering of humans on the planet. It was an estimated 30 million who were there. Mobile phone networks jammed, lost and found stations overwhelmed. Hindu pilgrims from all over India had descended at Sangam, the confluence of the three mighty rivers, the Ganges, the Yamuna, and the invisible mythical river Saraswati. It is there that every 12 years, Hindu faithful journey in the hopes of finding forgiveness as they wash away their sins in the river. They journey there to Sangam, and there they find forgiveness. So it is with most every religion. The Islamic Hajj to Mecca, they go on pilgrimage, and according to their beliefs, they come back white as snow, forgiven, right with God. The Christian journey is different. We too are on a pilgrimage of sorts, but here's the difference. We don't go on the pilgrimage to find forgiveness. Rather, we find forgiveness, and then we go on pilgrimage. Our journey only begins once we've found the truth, once we've met Jesus Christ personally and embarked on a relationship with Him. Then, and only then, does the journey commence. Now, when people today say they're on a journey, they mean, well, I'm on a quest for fulfillment that I've not yet found. They're not so much on a journey, really, as they're meandering because they don't know where they're going exactly. Maybe they're not even concerned about a destination. But not so with us. We're more like the ancient people of Israel. We're headed toward a place, a promised land, where one day we will meet our king face to face. Let's return to Deuteronomy, where we take up chapters 2 and 3. Deuteronomy chapters 2 and 3. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. Open up there. Chapters 2 and 3. Last week in chapter 1, the assembled people were there on the border. Just over the horizon from that land God had promised, the good life would be found in the good land. So 12 spies we saw last week, maybe you could call them 12 scouts, were sent out to explore, to see. And look at chapter 1, verse 25. 125, when they came back, it says, they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. And then look ahead to verse 35. Verse 35, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. And then look ahead to chapter 3, verse 25. 3 verse 25. This is Moses' last request of God. Please let me go over there and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country, and Lebanon. Now, why was the land such a big deal? 
in the Bible. I mean the real estate of Palestine. Why so significant? Well, here's why. Because God would dwell there. God would actually take up residence among his people, transforming this plot of land into a new Eden. You know how when you enter a, another country, you go through a passport control and you, you confront the border guards? Well, in the book of Genesis, we read that angels were the border guards posted at the borders of Canaan, signifying a new paradise. Of course, God made the whole world, it's true. He dwells in heaven above all space and time, to be sure, and yet, for a unique period of redemptive history on that timeline, he would actually live among his people in the land. And so that's why it was with such high drama that here in Deuteronomy, the people were poised to enter the land. And this morning we see the journey and the destination. The journey and the destination. Consider first the journey. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Now, Moses is addressing a new generation here. He is recounting the time when years earlier they had disobeyed God. We saw last week they had actually refused to take possession of the land because of their fears. And why were they wandering aimlessly now? Why were they meandering? Because they disobeyed God in spite of all that God had done for them. The deliverance out of Egypt, the giving of the law at Sinai, the supernatural sustenance in the wilderness. And they had the audacity to accuse God of evil. They tried to go back to Egypt. And so here was the result. Now it was an anti-exodus. Back in the direction from whence they came. Eleven days journey turned into 40 years. For many days we wandered around Mount Seir. But then, look at verse 2. Then the Lord said to me, You've been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land, no, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. Now, to situate ourselves, let's take a look at the map that's in your bulletin. It's, uh, it's there on page, uh, page 12. Everybody pull that out and just keep that in front of you. Do you see at the bottom of the map the Red Sea? Right there at the very bottom in the center. 
originally from Egypt, they were to go pretty much straight north and enter the land, which is that dotted line sort of uh, veering to the left, going straight up to Kadesh Barnea. That's where the rebellion occurred, we saw last week. That's where they said no to God, and they tried to go back. As a result, they wandered for the next 38 years eastward toward Edom, you see there, and then southward back toward the Red Sea, just meandering around. But then in verse 3, the Lord said, turn northward. And the new route would take them up the east side of Edom and Moab, just skirting the borders there on the east, and then westward into Canaan. So those three territories on the right side of the map, Edom, Moab, Ammon, they were Semitic people groups related to the people of Israel. Edom came from Esau, who was their forefather, Jacob's twin brother. Now, in the book of Genesis, Jacob and Esau family, uh, famously fought in the womb, and then they fought in real life. Serious sibling rivalry. Esau threatened Jacob and had the upper hand, but now it's Edom who is afraid of Israel. But Israel would not take any of Esau's land because God had given it to them. It's very interesting. Even their territory had been assigned by the living God, as Paul would say in the book of Acts. God had determined the exact places in which they should live. Now, it's interesting that after 38 years of wandering, these people still apparently had money with which to buy food and water from the people of Esau. In spite of their sin... God had blessed the people of Israel. Verse 7, these 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So was God really going to fail them now that they had reached the border of the promised land? Look at verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8. So we went on, away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road from Eleth and Ezion Geber, and we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. So the same thing here. Moab was also related to the people of Israel. Their forefather, whose name was Lot, was the nephew of Abraham, the founder of Israel. Now, in Genesis, we read of an incestuous relationship which produced twin brothers, Ammon and Moab, whose father was Lot. Actually, the family history of these people is much more scandalous than living with the Kardashians. <laughs> it's of such a kind that you could never make it up. It's highly scandalous. And yet, these people, too, had been given their land from God. And so that Israel was not to touch it, nor contend with them. And so they skirted around the east side of the territory of Moab and continued going northward. Verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13. Now, rise up and go over the brook Zered. So we went over the brook Zered. And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, that is, the men of war, had perished from the camp, as the Lord, the Lord had sworn to them. 
for indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. You see, sin has consequences. Here the last survivors of that former generation died just as they're crossing the brook, which you can see there on the map. They didn't just die of natural consequences, did they? Verse 15, For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they perished. And so every funeral was a reminder of their sin. And then note the sarcasm in verse 14. They're called the men of war. Well, hardly. These were the ones who had refused to go in and take the land. They had provoked God, and now the death sentence was carried out. So I think we should pause here and just let that be a warning to us too. Consider the consequences of sin. As the writer of Hebrews said, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But now, it seems there was a new spirit among the people of God. Now, unlike at Kadesh, they actually obeyed. They crossed over the Zered and continued northward. Verse 16. So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, Today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them. For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. So the same warning, don't contend with those people, just pass on by. But as they turned westward toward the promised land, notice that the strategy changed markedly. Now they approach the Amorite people. Look at verse 24. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. And now, worry became the Lord's weapon. Verse 25. This day I will begin to put dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you, and shall tremble, and be in anguish because of you. Forty years ago at Kadesh, it had been the Israelites who were afraid. Now it's the enemies who are afraid. So Israel would attack on the eastern border of the Promised Land, but it would begin with a peaceful note. Verse 26. Chapter 2, verse 26. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat, and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot. As the sons of Esau who live in Seir, and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me, until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving to us. Israel intended peace. By keeping to the road, they wouldn't trample property, they wouldn't consume the crops, and in fact, the people of Ammon would even profit from Israel's money. But verse 30, look at verse 30, but Sihon 
the king of Heshbon would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as he has this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I've begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Only the, lo- the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. From Aurora, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Only to the land of the sons of Ammon you did not draw near, that is, to the banks of the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden us. So God began to wipe out the inhabitants on the east side of the river Jordan. And the same thing would happen to a neighboring king, the king of Bashan, whose name was Og. He too would be handed over to Israel by God, who would strike all of them down until no survivors were left. Notice that in chapter 3, verse 6. 3, verse 6. And we devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. When we encounter a verse, like chapter 3, verse 6, we wonder, how is it that God could command such a thing? I mean, isn't it verses like this that cause people to think they're justified in not believing God? Haven't you heard this objection many times? I heard it only recently. Accusing God of being a tyrant? Committing atrocities? I mean, how do we make sense of what's happening here? Let me give you six brief comments. Six brief comments on how to make sense of the horror that we're confronting here. Number one, the Amorites were morally evil. They practiced child sacrifice, ritual prostitution. They were an entire society in active, open rebellion against God and were deserving of punishment. Now, this isn't ethnic cleansing. It's not about skin. It's about sin. Now, to prove that, Just turn back to Genesis 15. Keep your finger here. Turn back to Genesis 15, verse 16. Very important verse. Genesis 15 and verse 16. Now, in this passage, God is speaking to Abraham, the father of the people of Israel, And God is predicting that in the future, the people of Abraham will be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, but afterward, God will bring them back to the promised land. And look at Genesis 15, 16. 
and they shall come back here, that is to the promised land, in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The time was coming when God could no longer tolerate the sin of the Amorites, and they would be judged, dispossessed of their land as an act of divine punishment in the same way that Sodom and Gomorrah were punished. Or the entire planet was judged during the flood in the days of Noah. So here with the Amorites, they were held out for specific punishment. Now, this is difficult for us because we tend to think of the human race as basically good. We tend to think of ourselves as particularly good. But you know, the Bible describes a world that's in rebellion against God. Not just some of us either. All of us, in concert together, have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. The reason is because we all come from the same poisoned root. Our collective father, Adam, sinned, and we all became corrupt in him. Our very nature was changed, which is why every new baby born into this world. It's true. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Therefore, friends, don't marvel that God judges some of us. What's marvelous is that He doesn't judge all of us. So, number one is simply that the Amorites were morally evil. Number two, the judgment of the Amorites actually foreshadows the final judgment that is still to come. This is the worldview of the Bible. This is an anticipation of a coming day when the entire world will be judged. And the only ones who will escape that withering judgment are those who find shelter under the wings of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ came into this world to rescue. He lived the perfect life. He died on the cross and bore God's punishment in the place of anyone who would turn and trust in Him. He came to redeem a people. Now, none of us deserves that, but in God's mercy, He delivered some to be restored, to be reconciled to Him. And then number three. Number three, for a certain time, Israel was God's agent for punishment. Israel had a unique job description. There was never a nation like it before or since. And this was only for a unique period of time. So the defeat of King Sihon and King Og is a preview of the wrath that is to be poured out on the last day, and Israel were the messengers. Now, nowhere else does Scripture command or command a holy war. Only here and in the borders of Canaan. So these verses today cannot be used to justify any kind of warfare, any kind of land acquisition. It was unrepeatable. And I just want to add, if you're not a Christian, I just want you to consider this practice of devoting to destruction, it did not apply to warfare in other places, only within the borders of Canaan. In those cases, warfare outside the border, God actually commanded that Israel's army spare the women and the children. Deuteronomy 20, 13. They even were to have a humanitarian concern for the well-being of people they besieged, which is why the law prohibited cutting down fruit trees during a siege as an expression of concern for the survivors. Point number four. 
During that period of time, Israel's commission was to purify the land. Remember, this land was, it was like a, a garden of Eden. It was a sanctuary where God would dwell. And Israel's commission was to purify it. John Piper explains, the children were seen as part of the defiled society and were swept away in the judgment, not unlike the judgment of the flood or other natural disasters that God brings upon societies from time to time. This is God's prerogative, not ours. So all life is His. He gives. He takes according to His wise and holy purposes. And here's comment number five. I mentioned this last week, but you know, God doesn't play favorites. Right? Israel was subject to this too. Greg Beale said a similar kind of justice was later executed against Israel for her immorality and idolatry when she was cast out from her land, which involved the killing of many innocent people. And then just a final comment, number six. Christians today are not to engage in this kind of warfare because the people of God are no longer identified with a particular nation state. Right? We live under a, a new covenant, and today is not the day of judgment. Today is the day of salvation. And that's why Jesus told Peter, put away your sword. So Christian armies, Christian militias are a contradiction in terms. There is no such thing. So on their way to the promised land, imagine the scene. God is working out His purposes in history, and He's using Israel to accomplish it. They're, they're on journey. The journey began in Egypt, paused at Sinai for the law. It moved into reverse at Kadesh Barnea, but now it's moving forward again. Fresh momentum reaching the borders of the promised land. These victories over Sihon and Og were just the dress rehearsal. They were like the dry run for the promised land proper, where more conflict would arise. So notice the difference. 38 years before, there was unbelief, disobedience, and judgment. But now a new generation arose, and they acted on God's commands. And notice it involved all of them. It wasn't just the priests or the Levites or the tribal leaders. All of God's people participated in this journey. All those assembled thousands, they were not simply observers, they were participants. Gary Miller said, for Israel, a life of obedience is a life on the move toward the land. Which brings us then, secondly, to the destination. So, we've seen the journey. Secondly, the destination. When God's people defeated these two kingdoms, some of them received an inheritance. Moses recalled for the people in chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at Aurora, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is, all the region of uh, Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. So those were the two and a half tribes of Israel who received their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan. It was there that God gave them their place. But that didn't mean their work was over. 
didn't mean they could opt out from military service. Look at 3 verse 18. And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you. And they also occupy the land that the Lord their God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. Interesting how Moses describes the land there in 3 verse 20. Until the Lord gives rest to you, brothers. Of course, rest was God's original design in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? So the conquest of the land is seen as a return to the blessing of God's rest in paradise. But getting in wouldn't be a cakewalk. There were armies to confront. Preparations were made. Armed forces would accompany the people. So this is what Moses spoke to the assembled congregation on the very borders of the plains of Moab, on the verge of entering the promised land. So they were just about to confront an enemy with superior firepower, much greater technology. Wouldn't you expect that in that moment they would be reviewing battlefield tactics, plans and stratagems for war? But what is Deuteronomy? What is this speech? Well, if you keep reading, it's all about loving God and obeying His commandments. And why is that? Well, it's because their survival doesn't depend on their military prowess or their tactical brilliance. Look at 3 verse 21. And I commanded Joshua at that time, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them. For it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Moses' words that day were not simply a history lesson. They were more of a sermon. No, they were a summons to trust the one who had put them there. So those words in verse 22, it is the Lord your God who fights for you, they were meant not only for the people who heard Moses' voice, they're also meant for all those who read Moses' words. And that means for you and me. So verse 22 is for you. And I'm thinking of Romans 15, 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So just pause for a moment and ask yourself, what does it mean to you that the Lord your God fights your battles for you. What does that mean? I mean, who are your enemies? And what are your battles? Well, there's the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world allures us with its promises and temptations, and the flesh, that is our sinful nature, goes out to the world and seeks to be gratified by these things. And the devil is the personal, spiritual personage, the 
the enemy of God's people, seeking to weaken us, seeking to destroy us. And the Christian life is a life at war with our own sin. But God says, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Now, with a promise like verse 22, if it's true that God fights your battles for you, why do you fear the future? Why do you dread what's coming next? This doesn't mean you must be strong. It means you must lean on someone who is. As Paul said, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. So what does it look like for you to lean on the strength of another? Chris Lungard, in his book on fighting sin, describes the scenario in his life. He said, I am a poor, weak creature, unstable as water. I can't conquer my flesh. My corruption is too much for me and is a step away from ruining me. I've made promises many times and broken them. Many times I thought I'd won and would be delivered, but I was deceived. I can tell that if I don't get some help right away, I'll give up on God and make a shipwreck of my faith. But here at death's door, Lunsgaard says, I raise my weak arms. I look to you, Lord Christ, with all the grace in your heart, all power in your hand, more than able to slay all of my enemies. You can make me more than a conqueror. Friends, trust in Christ. Lean on Him, and you need not fear. Now, that doesn't mean that we sit back passively and do nothing, does it? What is Moses trying to get these people to do? (laughs) He wants them to act. He wants them to go and take the land. So this requires action. It's as we trust and obey God that He fights for us. He goes with us. I guarantee you, Sihon and Og were not good guys. In 3 verse 11, Og seems to have been some kind of giant. They were sworn enemies of God's people. Superior firepower, fortifications and iron bars, and yet little Israel coming in from the wilderness somehow defeated and displaced them. What did we repeat again and again in Psalm 136? He struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. These were the ones who emerged from the wilderness experience, and now a new generation was poised to enter the promised land, but not everybody was going to enter. Look at verse 23. Moses Moses recalled, and I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak of me to me of this matter again. A generation earlier, at the Exodus on the the shore of the sea, Moses had sung this song, Who is like you, O Lord, among all the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, doing wonders. And it's the same thing he said here. 
What God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such great things as yours? I mean, not that there are other gods in heaven or on earth. His point is, there are no others. Yahweh is incomparable. And Moses was the undisputed heavyweight hero of Israel. I mean, here was the mighty lawgiver, the greatest prophet, with astonishing intimacy with God. God said of Moses, with him I speak mouth to mouth, not in visions and dreams, but despite the intimacy, despite the closeness, somehow not even Moses would enter the land. Still, Moses kept pressing God repeatedly, apparently, asking till God was exasperated, enough from you, do not speak to me of this matter again. Maybe it's that Moses' eye had shifted from the Lord of the promise to the promise itself. And yet there was mercy here. Verse 27. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes. For you shall not go over this Jordan, but charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of his people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. As great as he was, Moses died outside the land. Hebrews 11 describes people like him as those who were commended for their faith, but who did not receive what was promised. Alan Harmon said, Though God's anger may have abated, yet he carried the guilt of Israel to his grave. There was need for a mediator of a new covenant. Another leader was needed to suffer and die outside the camp. In Moses' case, he had begun the task of carrying God's people, but then it fell to another, to Joshua, to continue it, and to still others after Joshua. But the new covenant is very different. The new covenant is where it is one and the same person who both begins and ends the mission as with Jesus, who is said to be the author and the perfecter of our faith. So Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As great as he was, Moses could only bring condemnation. Not even Joshua could deliver his people, finally. And so, Tanaka read for us earlier, Hebrews 4, 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Friends, only Jesus can give us the final rest that we long for. You see, he died outside the camp that we might come in. Jesus bore the curse of the law that we might receive the blessing. Don Carson said, There is only one person of whom it can be said that he made us and then became one of us. That he is the Lord of glory and a human being that he died in humiliation and shame on the odious tree, yet is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. But as we exalt Christ, you know, we can still learn from Moses, can't we? Moses, you see, lived before the Messiah. And for all of his unparalleled access to God and extraordinary revelation, he only saw dimly the features of the promise to come. 
Moses saw the promises and greeted them from afar, sort of out on the horizon, out there in the distance, as Isaac Watts puts it. Thy saints in all this glorious war shall conquer though they die. They view the triumph from afar and seize it with their eye. And that was Moses' greatest desire. Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan. Moses wanted to experience the fulfillment that was promised to him in a reconciliation with God in the land. That's what God's rest means. It means exquisite fellowship with the living God that one day He will dwell with us personally. It is the ultimate promised land. It is the better country to which Abraham was looking. You see, the New Testament sees the promised land of Canaan as a symbol of the ultimate and eternal rest that will be ours in Christ. That's what the Apostle Peter meant in 1 Peter 1 when he said, we've been born again into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven for you. He didn't mean a piece of real estate to the west of us in Palestine. No, this is our hope. Not our physical health. Not our families or our careers or a pain-free existence someday. No, what makes heaven so good is that Jesus is there. Jesus is our promised land, flowing with milk and honey and all manner of satisfaction. Jesus is our bread of life, and those who eat of it will never hunger. He is the inheritance. So Spurgeon asked, Where is the man who shall estimate our divine portion? Weigh the riches of Christ in scales and his treasures in balances, and then think to count the treasures which belong to the saints. Reach the bottom of Christ's sea of joy and then hope to understand the bliss which God has prepared for them that love Him. Overleap the boundaries of Christ's possessions and then dream of a limit to the fair inheritance of the elect. Friends, heaven is in reach. Is that what you're living for? Or are you wandering around aimlessly seeking satisfaction somewhere else? As Benjamin Story has described the restlessness of modern life, you see it in our love for the screen with its diversions and distractions, in our demand for endless variety in what we eat and drink and wear, in our appetite for mind-altering substances from pot to Prozac, in our fascination with crises in almost every area of human life. Friends, most of us never switch off, right? If we're constantly on call, if we're always on Instagram, if we rarely devote ourselves to quiet, prayerful Bible reading, then who is it that we're really trusting in? We began by observing that the Christian life is a journey of sorts. We are people on pilgrimage, but we're not wandering aimlessly. We have a destination. We have a promised land. Our captain secured our entrance, and he's waiting for us there. So, where are you headed? Let's pray.
Lord, we praise you that in your infinite mercy, you who have united us to Christ have given us a down payment on the eternal enjoyment that we will experience in the promised land. You have even now allowed us to see and savor the Lord Jesus Christ to a degree much greater than even Moses ever did. We praise you for the new covenant realities, the possession of the Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, the fellowship of the saints. We pray, Lord, that we might treasure these things more and more and that you would drive these lessons home to us, even in our final song. For Jesus' sake, amen.